0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the ongoing war in Ukraine, we have with us Dr. Elliot Cohen, our Arlie Burke Chair and Strategy at CSIS. And of course, Elliot Cohen was longtime dean at Johns Hopkins. We're so happy to have him here at CSIS with us. Elliot, in your recent piece that was published in The Atlantic, you talk about a shift in objectives by all parties in Ukraine. What what do you mean by that?
1: So one of the things that I was trying to do in that piece in The Atlantic, and as you know, I've had a series of articles about the Ukraine war there. What I've tried to do is bring to bear what military history can teach us about how wars unfold. Sometimes people have the unrealistic notion that you set objectives at the beginning of the war and then it's kind of like deciding you're going to build a bridge and the question is how effective are you at pulling together all the pieces to achieve that but in truth what what military history shows us is that objectives change during a war and the act of fighting changes them if you think about it britain went to war in 1939 to rescue poland and of course poland ended up being enslaved to uh, the soviet union but the war's larger purposes of eliminating the Nazi regime were achieved. Well, there's something similar here. You know, for each of the participants, the objectives have changed. I think for Russia, the initial objective was to overthrow the Zelensky government, to occupy, if perhaps all of Ukraine, at least the eastern half, install a puppet regime, and and really in many ways reestablish the Russian empire, or at least a good chunk of it, as it had existed before the fall of the Soviet Union. That has clearly changed to holding on to southern and eastern parts of the country. I think that's changing now, too. And in short order, this is going to be as much about regime preservation as anything else, as matters get worse and worse for the Russians. Obviously, the Ukrainians had pretty straightforward objectives, remaining free, independent. But I think there are two things are changing. As the Ukrainians have more success on the battlefield... It's not clear to me that they will be content with simply going back to the February 24th line of contact. They may very well wish to achieve more than that. And then, of course, there are issues like reparations and so on. For the United States, I think our initial objectives were to support Ukraine in what we expected to be an insurgency against a Russian occupation. Then it became, I think, to give them a fighting chance. And now, particularly with this $30 billion aid package it is to ensure their success but then there are other collateral objectives you know we nobody thought on february 23rd of this year that we were going to be in the business of expanding nato with the addition of finland and sweden and so i think there, you know objectives are shifting as facts on the battlefield shift and it's a bit unnerving but that's that's the nature of
0: war do you worry that in the United States, we're experiencing the first signs of fatigue over this particular conflict and, and that, you know, the, the focus we've had on it might not be able to be sustained? Well, you know, because of the terrible stream of Russian
1: atrocities and because of the fact that anybody who follows social media accounts like Twitter you know, is getting a, as much of a diet of accounts of this war as they can possibly deal with. And because of dramatic stories like the you know, that Ukrainian garrison in Mariupol, which held out for so long, and because of the appearances of Zelensky, it's always before us. But here's the main thing. I mean, we don't have to sustain a commitment of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of American troops in combat. All that we need to do is to agree to spend the money, which it's pretty clear Congress is going to do. And then uh, you know, the Air Force and the rest of the armed forces will do the business of getting that equipment over there. So I, you know, in that sense, you don't want the American people that revved up about a war, which they are themselves are not fighting. And even then, you know, I would say the American people have a bit more stick-to-itiveness than they sometimes get credit for. You know, if you think about the Afghan and Iraq wars, which after the initial period were not very popular... You know, we were in in Afghanistan for two decades. We were in Iraq for almost as long when in some ways we're still there, which would indicate that there's a fair amount of persistence, particularly if you're not drafting young Americans to go to fight those wars against their will, which obviously we're not. I don't really worry about it that much.
0: Do you expect this to continue to be a frozen conflict between Ukraine and Russia? Well, I think it'll be some, something
1: that will continue. But, I, you know, it seems to me that there have been two big misjudgments that people have made. We're about to make a third. First big misjudgment is Russia's going to roll over Ukraine in three days. It'll be all over. Maybe there'll be an insurgency. Maybe there won't. Well, that turned out not to be true. Then after the first couple of weeks, when the Russians bog down, it's, well, this is going to be a brutal, grinding conflict. But sooner or later, the Russians will take Kiev. Well, that turned out not to be true either. The Russians were defeated in the Battle of Kyiv and they were defeated in the Battle of Kharkiv. You know, with the Ukrainians now pushing Russian artillery beyond the range of uh, Kharkiv, which is the second biggest city, and indeed in some cases going back up to the Russian border. So I think the third misjudgment now is, well, this is gonna settle into a stalemate, and that I don't believe. I think you're much more likely, and it's conceivable, anything is conceivable in war, But I think what's much more likely is you're going to begin to see Russian collapses. The Russian military, which was, as we now know, a pretty mediocre military at the beginning of this conflict, is in very, very bad shape. And you're getting more and more stories of combat refusals, of officers shooting soldiers, soldiers shooting officers, officers deliberately wounding themselves so they don't have to go into combat units being thrown together in a way that can't possibly work because the casualties have been so high, terrible tactical decision-making, all, all that adds up to an army that I think could very well over the next couple of months find itself breaking in a number of places. And that's how certain kinds of wars end. No one side or the other just begins to collapse. Sometimes both begin to collapse, as in World War I. And although the Ukrainians have plenty of troubles and they've taken very heavy casualties, their combat motivation is so far beyond that of the Russians. And I would add their skill level also is so far beyond that of the Russians that I think there's a better than even chance that we will begin to see in the next month or two some quite major... Ukrainian victories. And, and we've already seen some very dramatic Ukrainian victories. We just haven't kind of stopped to acknowledge them.
0: Elliot, you've written about what could possibly be the last goal for Ukraine. What do you mean by that? And what is their last goal?
1: Well, I think that the ultimate Ukrainian goal is to restore their pre-2014 boundaries, which would be all of Donbas and the Crimean Peninsula. The Donbass part I can imagine a bit more easily than I can imagine Crimea. I think the, the Russian fight for that would be a lot more desperate and they'd have more going for them. But that is clearly the ultimate Ukrainian objective. They say that. Now, the question is going to be whether there's a certain point where they're willing to say, in order to kind of bring the suffering and sacrifice to an end, we're willing to accept the loss of some of our national territory, that's an extraordinarily hard decision to make. Countries have made that decision, but that'll be their decision. At the moment, it's, it's not a the decision they seem to be willing to make. And the, the thing that strikes me is, and I've been speaking to some Ukrainians, they're tremendously self-confident. And they're self-confident, I think, based on their, their sense of who they are, and what their military is like, but also their much more intimate understanding of the Russians than basically anybody else has. The Ukrainians are now the world experts on fighting Russians, and we should remind ourselves of that.
0: So you talk about in the next couple of months, we could see some pretty dramatic Ukrainian victories. What, what would that look like? What it would look like would be, and
1: you can't tell where, because I think the Ukrainian, the, the Ukrainian style of warfare... On the one hand, it's quite strategic, you know, they pick where they go, but I think it's also quite opportunistic at the operational level. That is, where they see weak points, they'll strike. And I think what what it will be in ways that you can't quite anticipate, and maybe even places you can't quite anticipate, where you begin to see entire Russian battalions or even larger formations running away or simply surrendering en masse. Nobody expected, I mean, this is as terrible as this war is and as costly. It's not World War I. But in November 1918, or let's say September, October 1918, nobody expected World War I to be on the Western Front to come to an end. You know, what happened was you began to have these collapses on the German front line. And it surprised everybody. And where it happened surprised people. Th- these are things you can't really tell in advance. But I think that'll, that will be the indicator. Now, you know, it could be that the Russians revive somehow or that the Ukrainians have suffered much more than we realize, they're weaker than we realize, and so it does settle down into some sort of stalemate. But I, I find it hard to believe. I think one other you know, point to make for, the, for our listeners, we suffer a lot from the big-hand, small-map problem. That is, you look at a map of Ukraine and you see all this red uh, where the Russians have occupied, you forget that this is a country the size of France, actually it's a little bit larger, and that the the Russian front line is literally hundreds of miles long. And simply with the numbers of forces that they have, that's not nearly enough to control that extended front line and, and the areas that they've driven through but don't really occupy. And we're getting more and more reports of partisan activities behind Russian lines. It's clear there's Ukrainian special operations going on behind their front lines. So it's, it's not a hard front in the way you might think of, say, in you know, terms of the world wars.
0: And the Russian will isn't, you know, as you have pointed out, isn't nearly what the Ukrainian will is. And that's got to be a huge problem for Russia.
1: It, it is. I mean, it's, will means different things, of course. There's the will of the Russian military and of, of I would say, of Russian soldiers. There's the will of the Russian leadership, which is something different, and I think you'll begin to see splits in the Russian leadership, and of course everything will get thrown into the mix if Putin really is sick, as some people claim. There's the will of the general Russian population, which has not yet really begun to suffer from sanctions, but but will over time. There's the will of those parts of the population that are affected by people being drafted. So... You know, I think Putin has tried to play that as carefully as he can, which is why he has not declared a general mobilization, although it seems as if there's a kind of covert partial mobilization that's going on. I, I, he does not want to publicly get up and say, yeah, this is not a special military technical operation. This is a war, and we're going to begin drafting kids to go fight men. That And that tells you a lot, that he's not willing to do that. And I think he knows that his society can't take that.
0: Well, what does that look like if the society can't take that? If he does have to conscript soldiers, as you pointed out, they've lost a tremendous amount of their fighting force. What does that look like for Putin in Russia if he has to go to those lengths?
1: Well, first, I think that that could be the point at which you begin to see more public protest that that the regime finds it hard to deal with. It's clear there's a lot of dismay at uh, the top of the Russian government about this decision that a lot of people think was stupid, potentially catastrophic. And, of course, the mobilization itself wouldn't go particularly well because they don't, you know, they don't have the leadership cadres to train all those conscripts. You know, The equipment they'd be pulling out of storage is most of it not functional. I mean, it would be a, an extraordinarily messy event. And you can't tell where that leads. I mean, these are snowball kinds of events. And I think that's, you know, it could go in all kinds of directions. All we know is that he is not willing to do that. And in that respect, I think you, you have to, if I can put it this way, respect his judgment, that he he senses that this would not go over well and that he personally cannot
0: afford to do this. As we've discussed, one of his key miscalculations has been about the strength of NATO about the resilience of NATO, and and certainly with Finland and Sweden now set to apply for NATO membership, how likely do you think we are to see Ukraine follow suit and that be a successful campaign? You know that sort of thing is in the future, sometime five,
1: ten years from now. But what I I would say is, and I do, I think this is something I've been saying from the beginning. This is really a transformational kind of war. It's the most consequential war of my lifetime, I, I do believe. And I think things which will have seemed impossible before or highly imprudent will not seem that way after this. Some of these will be a little bit more subtle than whether you know there are 32 countries in NATO or 30. So, for example, one thing that's happened is that it's just so clear that the, the real energy in Europe on security matters is in the East, It's with Poland. It's with the Baltic states. It's with some of the other East European states, the Czech and Slovak republics, even Bulgaria and Romania. It's with the Nordic states, Finland, Sweden. It's with the British, who've come back in a big way, despite Brexit, are actually playing, I think, a very large, very constructive role. The United States is back. The countries that have not been shaping this are France and Germany. And, I mean, Italy has never really played that kind of role, though in theory it should, given its size. And I think that's going to last. You know, I think the, you know, we got our first taste of that, actually, in the run-up to the Iraq War, when Don Rumsfeld made his famous remark about old Europe and new Europe. He was on to something. But I think now this is really going to be pronounced, because, you know, it's been about a matter of life and death for those East European states, and they have some remarkable statesmen, or dare I say, stateswomen. You know, if you look at the, the leaders of Estonia and Finland, they are extraordinarily impressive and forceful and compelling politicians. And, you know, one of the things that's peculiar about European politics is you know, Estonia may have like only a little bit more than a million people, but when you have somebody like the Estonian prime minister as articulate and forceful as she is, her voice carries as much weight in many ways as Olaf Scholz or even uh, Emmanuel Macron in certain respects. It's going to be a very different world. And the Swedes are impressive as well. The Swedes are very impressive. I've, I find the Finns the most impressive, you know, that they, they have worked so long on being prepared to deal with the Russians. You know, it's a country that can put 275,000 troops in the field, has 1,500 artillery pieces, you know, a really comprehensive self-defense system and having them all along Russia's border as part of NATO. I mean, Putin's trying to minimize the significance of this. I think that's not because he's happy about it. I think it's because he knows there's nothing he can do about it. And if he calls attention to it, it will make people in Russia further realize
0: the catastrophe that he's led them into. Yeah. And his gross miscalculation, because It can't be a minimal effect to have an emboldened Finland part of NATO on his border.
1: I mean, you know, it'll mean all kinds of things that people don't think about. So, you know, general officer positions in NATO are shared around the NATO countries. You're going to begin to have Finnish generals in charge of significant forces. That'll make a big deal. You'll have American units, not just training there, but maybe as semi-permanent or even permanent presences. I mean, some of that goes on now. Uh, there's been more and more of it over time. But those will be symbolically very powerful and important. And this is a huge setback for Russia.
0: What does this say to the leadership in France and Germany, though, as they see countries like Finland really taking on a leadership role? What do you, what do you think happens there as a result? You know, they're very different. I think that the Germans are still in shock I believe
1: the Chancellor Schultz is sincere about what he calls the Wende, You know that they will put a lot of money into defense, that they'll provide arms to the Ukrainians. On the other hand, the brute fact is the Germans have absolutely no skill at exercising national security leadership in Europe. They are incapable of it or have proven themselves incapable of it. So even when they do the right thing, they do it too late and in kind of what seems like a grudging way. Furthermore, Schultz's party, the SPD, is in trouble. They've uh, taken a hammering in by-elections. So who knows how long they will be. So maybe when you have a change in leadership and you have some kind of connection between the Christian Democrats and the Green Party come in, it'll be different. But for the moment, Germany can't lead, and it is still wrestling with the, the weight of its truly awful policy towards Russia over the last 20 or 30 years, which is a terrible legacy, which it needs to undo. France is different. You know, It's a very powerful presidential system. President Macron, I don't think it's a kind of a cowboy foreign policy, which is some, sometimes how it's been described. I think he does see a particular role for himself as being the European leader who can talk to Putin, and I'm willing to believe that when French officials or semi-officials say, look, he doesn't do this without talking to Zelensky and so on. But, but it does make it sound as though, you know, this is largely about ego. The French are doing military things which are important, you know, sending artillery and so forth. But there again, I don't think the French, the French don't have what it takes to exercise leadership, particularly over the East Europeans. I mean, the, there's a fundamental gap in trust, I think, between the Central and East Europeans on the one hand, the East Europeans, let's say, and France and Germany. And it's going to take a lot of work by, by France and Germany separately or together before there is some level of trust. And I don't think it will happen. I think the, you know, the connection that, they, that the East Europeans value is with us and with the Brits. And to, you know, to a lesser extent with the Canadians, who've also been quite good. You know, with the French and Germans, you can just sense there's a lot of, there's gratitude for what they're getting, but there's also a lot of wariness.
0: How and when do you see this war coming to an end? God only knows. I think it was a very interesting
1: interview on Sky News with the uh, head of Ukrainian military intelligence, who was basically saying that he thought it would be over by the end of the calendar year but with the decisive fighting finishing up sometime over the summer, and that by August you'd have the Ukrainians on, on the offensive. I, I kind of take that to mean that they actually plan to go on the offensive earlier than that. You know, it'll be done depending on battlefield conditions. I, I don't see how the Russians can sustain this level of combat loss and defeat for more than another couple of months. Simply with being able to hold ground, maybe societally they can take losing thousands and thousands of young men and having thousands more be badly wounded. But but I just think in terms of the situation on the ground, I find it very hard to imagine that they'll be able to hang on much more than that. Now, you know, the question will then become, is, is it a frozen sort of conflict where there's a, kind of a jagged front line and continual shelling back and forth? Is there some kind of ceasefire that's sort of imposed by the outside world because of fear about Ukrainian grain exports? I and mean, those are all variables that we just can't tell yet. But at this level of intensity, I find it hard to believe that it's going to go on more than a few months. And, and during those few months, what's going to happen is the Russians are going to basically, I think, get weaker and the Ukrainians who are going to be armed to the teeth by the West are just going to get stronger. I mean, they, in the competition between Russian arms factories and Western arms factories, you'd be smart to bet on the Western arms factories.
0: Elliot Cohen, thank you as always for these really important insights into this conflict and, and what's happening there. Thanks so much. Always uh, good to be with you and it's good to be at CSIS. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard.